Welcome to the Marxist Think Tank podcast, an attempt to look at the world from a class-conscious perspective and to build. We need to reject this as a cultural war wedge issue because it is dividing us and it is mm. taking our attention away. I mean, uh, Biden just dropped bombs on Syria. He just right. deported 26,000 people. Um, but we're over here arguing... Hello, everyone. Um, good evening, good afternoon, good morning, wherever you are. Um, today, we are going to be speaking to uh, Esperanza. Uh, welcome, Esperanza. It's uh, a pleasure to have you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to uh, get into the topics today. Cool. Great. Great. Me too. Um, so, yes, Esperanza, um, for our listeners and for everyone, if you could just give a bit of background as to uh, who you are, where you are, and um, what you do, and maybe a bit of your politics. Yeah, so I'm in uh, California in the U.S. I'm a member of the organization Affirm. We stand for Association of Feminists Fighting Fascism, Imperialism, Marginalization, and Refutalization. We are a staunchly anti-imperialist and militant feminist organization. Um, I am a, uh, you know, Marxist, Leninist, Maoist, I would say that's the sort of ideological tradition that I come from. Um, and, uh, you know, for the past seven years, I've uh, worked as a labor organizer, uh, organizing unions and, uh, you know, workers. And uh, most recently, a lot of my uh, writing and research has focused on the sex industry, combating the liberal trends within uh, the left and, uh, you know, specifically sort of seeping uh, into uh, socialist and, you know, communist discourse on the sex industry um, and specifically linking the sex industry to imperialism. Okay. Wow. Okay. That's, that's, that's quite, quite some work. Um, great. And just, could you say that again for us, affirm, so it's the association or... Of feminists, feminists fighting fascism, mm -hmm. imperialism, marginalization, and refutalization. Mm, the, okay. the name was made like three years before I was born, so <laughs> oh, <laughs> I did okay. not take part in it. But I, I, I think it's a good name. Uh, <laughs> it's it's comprehensive. Um, cool. Okay. Thank you. So um, you're in Oakland, in California. Okay. And yes, you just said you're a labor organizer. So, so I just want to, what kind of um, workers have you been organizing? I've organized uh, everyone from, you know, hotel workers and housekeepers to fast food workers at McDonald's and Burger King um, to nurses uh, to, you know, gig workers, um, really uh -huh. like a mixed bag of, uh, you know, low wage workers here in the U S I see. I see. Okay. That's great. Um, brilliant. And one of the reasons I guess you've been brought in today is I suppose we'll go straight to that actually is the, um, <clears throat> within work, uh, firms work and within your studies that you just said, uh, countering some of the trends within the left, uh, particularly in relation to the sex industry. So, yeah, if you want to talk about that, you said your research has been within that. Um, so, yeah, what do you mean you've been countering 
that narrative? What, what, what does that mean to you? Yeah, so um, when you look at the uh, hegemonic discourse about the sex industry, both within the U.S., but also within, uh, you know, other nations, uh, partially due, or if not mostly due, to neo-colonialism, right, and the effect of imperialist-sponsored uh, NGOs, um, the arguments in favor of the sex industry are all based on uh, hyper-individualistic, liberal uh, ideology. Um, the arguments are, uh, you know, all based on autonomy, on a hyper-individualistic analysis of choice, um, the focus is always on the uh, prostituted person trying to assert her agency as a so-called sex worker. Uh, the focus is never on uh, the economic or social forces which shape the sex industry or which recruit its army of labor. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, part of uh, what, what I've tried to do is trace the history of the political project of uh, what is called sex work and how that history is painted as a history of an independent workers' movement fighting back to gain independence. Whereas what I've uncovered and, and learned is that it's actually uh, very few uh, women in the sex trade that, you know, created this project. Uh, the few that were, were sort of, you know, petty uh, bourgeoisie who decided to, um, you know, be adventurous and experiment with prostitution and then naturally became sort of class collaborationists uh, with known pimps and the sex mm -hmm. industry. And together uh, they sort of launched this movement uh, in the late 70s, at, you know, when neoliberalism was really taking hold. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I see, I see. And so essentially then you, you sort of, from your perspective then, you, you're sort of, um, you're countering the idea that um, there's sort of any liberational uh, element to sex work, that it's a part of the, or fits within or underneath the, the framework of imperialism, the framework of, of capitalism, of exploitation, uh, that the idea that sex workers, um, you know, are liberating themselves, are, are independent, and um, that we should be pursuing the sort of uh, pro-sex work kind of stuff. It, this is not a good idea, and it's not, um, it's not, and that analysis is not looking far enough into the superstructure uh, as to why we have sex workers. Is that correct? Correct. And, and I think it's not even looking enough into the base of society. I mean, um, to legalize or institutionalize prostitution is, you know, like comrades in Spain said, you might as well, you know, allow the bourgeoisie to plant a victory flag on, you know, capital's grounds because mm -hmm. they have appropriated our bodies as one of these sort of, you know, last frontiers uh, that they're able to commodify. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the discourse is so cut off from material reality that, uh, you know, these arguments made in favor of the sex trade are, one, entirely ahistorical, 
too, typically based on a sort of, you know, imperialist chauvinism, especially within the U.S., that ignores the role of imperialism, ignores the role of militarization, uh, ignores the role of actors such as the IMF and the World Bank. Mm-hmm. Um, and it creates these theories that mask themselves under rhetoric about empowerment of the so-called sex worker. But really what it is in the last instance is empowerment of the sex buyer, empowerment of the free market to exert control over the bodies of proletarian women and nationally oppressed women, Mm. uh, and empowerment of the ability for the capitalist state and, uh, you know, imperialists to collude in uh, profiting off of Uh, the sex industry, which is sort of what you see in areas like Thailand. Um, You know, we know that uh, the U.S. turned the third world into a brothel, which is why, you know, when a worker or anti-imperialist party takes power, one of the first things that they do is kick the foreign imperialists out. And that includes the imperialist sex pests that, you know, come into, uh, you know, their, their land and uh, use their money to uh, buy sexual access to the bodies of nationally oppressed proletarian women. Mm, 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 mm. Uh, yes, I think you've, you've partially answered what I was going to ask is that I just wanted to get an example of the, the more uh, specific and direct way in which uh, imperialism uh, creates uh, the sex industry, and I think I think the Thailand example is that. So, is I suppose is that the, the prime example of how uh, imperialism has created a sex industry? Is, is I assume the the, the the troops going to Vietnam and having their R and R bases in Thailand was is a big factor as to how how the sex industry grew there. Yeah. So so there's a few factors. One is exactly what you stated. So, you know, when the U.S. sponsored militarization in these countries, they set up military brothels to serve, uh, you know, foreign soldiers. Um, and those brothels uh, turned, you know, they, they laid the basis for the infrastructure of the sex tourism industry today. Mm-hmm. Combine that with the, uh, you know, interest rate loan policies of the IMF, the cuts to social welfare, um, and the other effects of, you know, le- neoliberal globalization, mm-hmm. which caused both mass migration in those areas, um, but also destabilizing local economies, um, you know, taking away jobs. And what you end up having is the infrastructure that was laid by militarization and then the economic forces created by actors like the IMF and the World Bank pushing people into that industry. And so, you know, uh, years ago when Maria Mize, for example, uh, you know, wrote patriarchy and capital accumulation on a world scale, she was really able to describe the way that these states uh, would attempt to drive down the price of these commodities, uh, namely the bodies of women and children, in mm-hmm. order to attract foreign tourists, uh, whether from uh, you know Japan or Germany or the United States, mm-hmm. um, and the profit that was generated uh, by these commodities, uh, the bodies of women and children were then split between uh, the different industries, such as open air bars, the hotel industry, um, the state, and sometimes even the police. 
I see. I see. So I, I think I think if, uh, it's, it's, it's a fascinating um, description of, of what you've outlined there of how, particularly in the <clears throat> the Thai example, uh, in militarization, as you say, so empire pushing itself into into third world countries or developing nations, and um, and then along with the economic policy, uh, with neoliberalization, cutting services, uh, cutting down on, on industries and jobs availability, making life very difficult for the working class and particularly for, for working class women, and then forcing them into places where they then have to sell their bodies um, to survive. Um, in <clears throat> sorry, excuse me. Um, do you think there's any instances where um, at all where where um, sex workers uh, are exempt from this kind of um, phenomenon as you've described, uh, perhaps within the, the core of empire. Does it, is it any different anywhere uh, in the world? Well, you know, I would argue that uh, like every industry under capitalism, uh, it is, you know, unequal and there is a class structure within it, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, the sex trade uh, always retains its class character, and you, you see this, right? So you see that the concentration and frequency of violence is directly linked to the class position of the person in the sex industry. Um, those that uh, tend to, you know, make more money while they do still experience violence, uh, the frequency, you know, might, might be less than, say, a woman who is on the lower rung of the, you know, class uh, stratification. And mm -hmm. she is going to experience, uh, you know, far more frequency uh, of incidents of violence as well as, you know, concentration of that violence. Um, although I believe, uh, you know, what I've tried to prove through my writing as well has been that um, what makes the sex trade violent is not, simply uh, external factors, right? As dialectical materialists, we understand that in order to understand a thing, we have to look at the contradictions internal to that thing because the conditions internal to that thing drive its development, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. And when you look at the contradictions internal to the sex trade and you say, what are some of the main contradictions, uh, one of them that, you know, I've sort of identified is between what I would call the buyer and the bot or between the prostitute and the sex buyer. So we know that, uh, you know, Marx and capital taught us that, um, you know, transactions and capitalism sort of congeal underlying social relationships, right? Mm -hmm. So when the, uh, you know, sex buyer is making a transaction with the prostitute, that is a social relationship um, between two different classes of people, right? With two different uh, interests based on their class position. Um, the buyer wants uh, more for less, and the prostitute wants to do less for more. And that is not based on the disposition, it's based on their class position. Of course, this is sort of an abstraction, right? Like sort of like a freezing of the moment in order to understand it. But it's a generalization that we're able to make because these are opposing class interests that clash at the point of the uh, transaction. Um, so that is a power struggle. But when that power struggle plays out, 
over and inside of your body during sex, some violation of your boundaries or sexual violence is bound to occur. And that's why I believe that violence in the sex trade cannot simply be reformed out. Uh, it is inherent to the sex trade. Mm, 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 mm. I see. And so <clears throat> what do you think, um, uh, I suppose it's quite difficult, of course, within, uh, I, I suppose you might say that <clears throat> within revolutionary politics that, of course, all of this can only ever be uh, solved with the overthrowing of the state and, uh, you know, within within all that kind of stuff. But um, I suppose on a, on a more sort of tactical or smaller level, uh, what what kind of uh, things should be done to uh, assist sex workers? And, and also, I think I would like to talk about, I mean, <clears throat> or if I'd like to hear your thoughts on, I think it's France uh, that has a, a sort of quite famous uh, sex workers union um, where, you know, uh, the sex workers have formed it and, and they try and make their demands, et cetera, et cetera. I want to hear your thoughts on that. And then also, again, yeah, what, what do you think uh, we should, how, how should we help sex workers? Yeah, so let me uh, address the union question first. So, sure. um, you know, the first thing is that we need to recognize that the sex trade is violent and coercive under any legal framework which it exists under. So we know that liberals, they don't look at history or material reality when they form their arguments. They start with some idea that pops up in their head and says, oh, I could imagine the sex trade as being, you know, a safe industry. And so let's work towards that. Well, we're not liberals, we're Marxist, scientific socialists, right? So we have to look at how the sex trade originated throughout history, how it developed according to conditions, and how it exists now in material reality. And that allows us to, uh, you know, understand how the sex trade might develop in the future. And when you look at that, there has never been a moment in history in any geographical location that we know of under any policy or legal framework in which it has not exposed uh, women in the sex trade to extreme amounts of violence and trauma <clears throat> or in which its uh, army of labor uh, was not recruited from the most uh, sort of destitute uh, classes of people, right? You look at mm. uh, within any nation, it's typically uh, those who are, uh, you know, the most uh, dispossessed or pushed out from participation in the formal economy, unable to sell their labor power. Um, mm -hmm. And when they cannot sell their labor power, what else are they left to sell or to rent out or to trade uh, their body, right? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Access mm -hmm. to it. Internationally, you see that it is nationally oppressed women and the lowest classes from the most oppressed nations that constitute the army of labor. So, you know, that's one thing, right? Recognizing that violence has not been able to be reformed out, even in uh, nations that have decriminalized the sex trade completely and allowed unions. Um, and then the second thing is that the army of labor is still coerced. And we have a word for coerced sex. That word is rape. <clears throat> now, to get into the union question a little further, mm. um, unions have largely been unsuccessful in reforming violence out of the sex trade and in reforming coercion out of its recruitment strategy. 
Um, why is this? Well, one, there typically is no fixed place of work. Sure, sometimes you have brothels. Brothels create their own problems. Um, oftentimes, they just open it up to more privatization, even if it's a co-op. Uh, as you know, co-ops are still subject to capitalist market forces. They do not exist outside of capitalism. They exist within capitalist competition. So they are going to be influenced by those forces. Um, additionally, it's an industry which uh, resists uh, formal recognition. Uh, clients or sex buyers do not want to be named publicly or, you know, be sort of registered. I mean, if you're cheating on your wife or your girlfriend or you're sleeping with a transgender woman and you don't want anybody to know, you're probably not going to want your name on a book somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, also, women in the sex trade uh, might uh, not want you know it to be public in the future, so they might also want to remain underground. Um, and then also, you know, the the very real issue of pimps and traffickers who, uh, you know, might also want to evade formal recognition in order to engage in, uh, you know, illegal activity to maximize their profit. So, um, all of those things make uh, unionizing the sex trade in a traditional manner very difficult. Uh, if not, I would argue impossible. You see, you see, you see. And so, yeah, uh, the, the other question was, um, what, uh, what, what should we be doing for sex workers? Yeah, so I think there are a few things. The first thing is that uh, anybody who is exploited by the industry has to be decriminalized. And there has to be affirmative defense in the law to ensure that they are not criminalized under any circumstance. So, you know, if if you have two women in the sex trade working together, you have to put an affirmative defense in the law to protect them from being charged as pimps or brothel keeping, whatever. They have to be decriminalized. Uh, The second thing is that they have to be provided with exit services. Uh, The right to exit is uh, one of the, if not the most denied right to proletarian women, whether it is the right to exit the sex industry, the right to exit an abusive relationship, um, the right to exit, uh, you know, a violent situation. Um, Women need the right to exit. That includes fighting for ambitious uh, services, uh, whether that is housing, health care, you know, access to jobs, access Mm. to job training, mental health care, food, money. uh, All of those things need to be provided um, and they need to be fought for because they're not simply going to be given as a concession. They have to be won, right? Mm. Um, And then the last thing is that we cannot allow... Uh, the pimp lobby to uh, legalize or decriminalize themselves because that will allow the sex trade to expand. And when the sex trade expands, so does the violence, uh, the coercion, and the exploitation within it. Mm, 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 mm. Okay. And then, right. and then lastly, just the only other thing that I want to say is that I think a lot of the uh, sort of like abolitionists Uh, that are not communists uh, think that they can simply pass a law and that, you know, the state, which they see as neutral, um, is going to neutrally enforce that law. But as uh, communists, we know the state is not a neutral entity. It it is a, you know, 
a form of a tool of class repression. Yes. Um, it's not neutral that we can just sort of steer in our favor, uh, unless, of course, we take power. Um, that's different. Um, and so, you know, I think that we need to actually be militantly organized in order to, you know, defend people because, you know, you have women who are chased down by pimps. You have women who are dealing with abusive or violent sex buyers and uh, they need, a, you know, an organized group that can actually defend them and assist them. And so I think uh, getting organized and uh, organizing with them is, is also imperative. Mm, mm, mm. Okay. Uh, I just wanted to see also on, on what well, before we move on to something else. Um, uh, how current sort of um, communist states are, are dealing with this topic or this question? Um, just to see what your thoughts are on that, or if there's a prime example of what you think uh, is a good policy being pursued by perhaps Cuba, perhaps Vietnam, perhaps China or Laos or, or North Korea. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I think that what you see in most states uh, when they have, you know, proletarian party has taken power, um, you know, what they have done typically has been uh, to decriminalize uh, those who are prostituted, um, but to not decriminalize those who benefit from that exploitation, right? So, for example, you see in Cuba, you know, that uh, people in prostitution are not criminalized but pimps and traffickers and sex buyers are. Mm -hmm. um, I think that is a good principle for us to adopt. I don't think you can just simply copy and paste the policy from one mm -hmm. country onto another. I think it has to be specific to your own conditions. Um, mm -hmm. But I do think that is a principle by which uh, we should be starting from. And I mm -hmm. think when you look at socialist states that have introduced capitalist reforms um, or socialist states that have fallen such as uh, or been overthrown, such as the USSR, what you see is that at the moment that it's either, you know, reversed into capitalism or capitalist reforms have been introduced, that uh, prostitution begins proliferating again, as does trafficking. So like you see a lot of, uh, you know, states that were in the former Soviet Union mm. have now become, you know, sources of trafficked women and gay men. Um, mm. I was even, uh, you know, having this fascinating conversation uh with uh, this one sort of Marxist researcher on the website uh, Twinkrub. And he was looking at how some of the uh, gay pornography companies um, arose during the time immediately after the fall of the Soviet Union and that they recruited the majority of their actors from those states, uh, mm. men who needed money because of the economic uh, fallout of, mm. you know, what had happened. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Interesting. Fascinating. Mm. Um, okay. Uh, coming into sort of the, uh, the more of the, I suppose, the, uh, the liberal side of this and the, the, the sort of, I suppose in some way, sort of uh, the, 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 the hype or discussion that we're having right now that amongst some circles, particularly on Twitter, uh, the term SWERF, uh, sex worker, exclusionary, exclusionary, radical, exclusionary radical feminist, sorry. Um, uh, you, uh, apparently you, you mentioned earlier that, um, before we started that, that you are being labeled as a SWERF. Um, I just want to hear your thoughts on that. 
Yeah, I mean, I think in general, it's it's just such a smear, right? I mean, one is that we have to recognize that there has existed a class struggle um, in which the uh, pimps and uh, capitalists and imperialists are uh, sort of shrouding themselves. Uh, and while they are, you know, vacationing, uh, enjoying their money, um, you have uh, people currently in the sex trade fighting with each other, fighting with survivors of the sex trade. And we ignore that there's been this class struggle going on. Um, part of what that does, though, is it leads us to see um, these different strategies, such as, uh, you know, the term sex worker or, you know, the term swerf as sort of neutral or arising organically. Um, but I think that there's something deeper, which is that it's actually a product of that class struggle. I mean, look at the playbook of the sex industry and how similar it is to the fossil fuel industry. Look at how they've achieved uh, the conflation between the interests of the industry and those who benefit from the industry with the interests of those exploited by the industry on whose backs the industry rests. Um, when environmentalists are, you know, trying to figure out how to uh, divest from fossil fuels, uh, oil workers and other workers in that industry, uh, you know, sort of feel like uh, their jobs are, you know, being uh, threatened and that, you know, a just transition plan would, uh, you know, harm them. And uh, that only really benefits the industry at the end of the day. And so that's the same sort of Thing that you see in the sex industry. So mm. I think for the most part, those of us who are labeled swerfs are not swerfs. I mean, I organize with women in the sex trade. Most recently, I've even helped raise money for women who are trying to exit. Um, we are not exclusionary of someone because they're in the sex trade. Uh, so I, I sometimes joke, I say, I'm not a swerf. I am a I'm not, I'm not a sex worker, exclusionary, radical feminist. I am a John exclusionary, revolutionary communist or a pimp <laughs> exclusionary, revolutionary communist. Okay. <laughs> right. Okay. Pimp exclusionary. So a perf or, or a jerf maybe. Okay. <laughs> it's just, I don't really use those acronyms. But. No, I, I, don't, I, I, I understand. <laughs> okay. Um, so within, you know, this term swerf, obviously, again, a big Twitter thing, a big sort of online uh, debate term coming into sort of the, the, the sort of other side of this discussion that we wanted to bring up. And not, not necessarily that these things are uh, that intertwined um, is, is that the counter term to swerf is turf, uh, the trans exclusionary radical feminist. Um, I wanted to hear your thoughts on, on the trans issue and to see uh, what your thoughts are on that. The trans discussion, I should say. Yeah, so I mean, I think that uh, there there's two sort of dominant uh, or like sort of, you know, blocks uh, representing two different ideologies that are at war with each other right now. Um, one is the sort of, you know, liberal, uh, postmodern, uh, you know, uh, idea of gender that's completely disconnected from material reality, right? Like gender only exists in your head. Um, you can... Uh, Oh God, I'm so afraid to talk because I know whatever I say is going to get me in trouble. Um, so let me try to <laughs> be principled. Um, you know, uh, that sort of like gender simply exists in your head, right? And that um, it has nothing to do with how you are actually embodied or how you are gendered by society or how, you know, 
gender is also a social relation that has social consequences. Uh, it's just sort of seen as an identity in your head. They attempt to, uh, you know, demand the uh, sort of dissolution of the word women. Mm-hmm. I believe that that is a very real phenomenon because I've experienced it. The idea that there is no, you know, sort of political subject of woman, which I, you know, disagree with. Um, or the idea that, uh, you know, women's oppression is not at some level connected to their biological reality, which I I would argue that it is uh, somewhat, uh, a lot. Um, but then on the other side, you know, you have this sort of reactionary trend, uh, which, you know, sees transgender women as a form of, uh, as a result of misogyny, um, which is <laughs> an argument that I've heard. Uh, that, you know, sort of paints transgender women to be, uh, you know, sort of predators attempting to encroach on the territory of women um, and sort of, you know, finds anecdotes of incidents where transgender women have been predators Mm -hmm. and plays them up to sort of, you know, use an anecdote to generalize about all of us. Mm -hmm. And I think that is, is very reactionary. Um, And so I think that uh, we need to sort of have an intervention here, um, which rejects both sides of that debate and is grounded in material reality. I mean, the radical feminists who uh, sort of, you know, fall into reaction when it comes to trans people, this is a result of uh, erroneous uh, thought on their part. I mean, they, you know, sort of, mistake the primary contradiction in society to be between males and females rather than, uh, you know, between the classes. Mm -hmm. And they often uh, define uh, material reality in terms of, uh, you know, simply biological reality and often miss uh, the social reality um, that is also, uh, you know, material in a way. Um, whereas the other side, though, is, is sort of completely disconnected from material reality. Um, and so I think we need to have a sort of like dialectical intervention that can account for those two things and sort mm-hmm. of synthesize what is true about both and reject what is not true. Mm-hmm. You actually, yeah, you mentioned there about the, the anecdote uh, finding. So the, the one camp, as you described, trying to find uh, the trans uh, predator entering women's spaces and, and they use that anecdote to then um, uh, make the generalization. And particularly because, of course, you've been working with uh, in the sex industry or with sex workers. Um, um, one of the anecdotes is, or one of the, not necessarily the anecdote, one of the, 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 the points raised is that, um, uh, you know, there's certain facilities, maybe crisis centers or sexual assault or trauma centers um that are you know uh, have been sort of historically built for for women specifically, um, and that the sort of uh, trans individuals are mm, there's being demands that they should be included within these places, and there's a voice saying that they shouldn't be because of certain reasons. Uh, I wanted to hear what your thoughts on that as to whether that's also an example of this, which where that sits within the camps as you describe them, and and um, whether that's a real phenomenon because of your work with the with sex workers? Yeah, so, you know, uh, being dialectical materialists, our answers are often yes and no, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes, right? (laughs) Uh, So, you know, uh, one is that just to sort of 
give you a personal example, I was in a woman's shelter after I left the sex industry. And I was the only trans woman. Uh, but I was sort of sexually, uh, I don't want to say assaulted because I didn't feel particularly affronted by it. Um, but, you know, there was this woman who uh, touched me uh, in very private areas that would be considered sexual assault uh, without my consent. And she was uh, sort of doing this to me constantly because she sort of fetishized me as a transgender woman. Now, I could, you know, take her, uh, you know, particular positionality, um, where she's from, perhaps her race, perhaps other, you know, aspects of her, and then paint her to be some predator. Uh, but that's simply not true, right? That was a, you know, a single person um, who did that. And, and I recognize that. So, mm -hmm. so I think like, you know, this idea that um, we can just sort of take anecdotes of trans women and then try to make them the rule when they are actually the exception is, mm -hmm. is somewhat dubious, right? At the same time, however, um, there is a postmodern push to not understand that gender is anchored in some sort of material reality or embodiment. So, you know, uh, for example, you'll see people who say, oh, I do not need to transition in order to access uh, women's spaces. Um, and, and I think that that is also sort of insidious because we do have to recognize that uh, women-only spaces can provide a sort of refuge um, from male violence because male violence is a real phenomenon and a real problem. And so to attempt to tell women that they cannot have a women-only space is uh, is erroneous, in my opinion. Um, so I, I think that the issue largely has to be uh, more nuanced than it is right now. Mm -hmm. um, I think that if a trans woman has transitioned and it makes sense for her to be there, then it makes sense for her to be there. Uh, but if someone has not transitioned or made any effort to transition, um, then, then there is no need for them to be there because whatever they are, it simply exists in their head and not in their physical body. Mm. Um, at the same time, there needs to be, uh, you know, sort of uh, firewalls to prevent abuse, even in single sex spaces. Um, and then the last thing that I'll need to say is that, you know, sometimes uh, radical feminists also fall into identity politics because they misunderstand that proletarian women have more to gain by uniting with proletarian men of their own class than they do with bourgeois women uh, who are their class enemies. So, you know, you have this whole I stand with J.K. Rowling movement. I mean, J.K. Rowling is a billionaire woman. Uh, she is not our class friend. She is our class enemy. Um, mm. and, and we should recognize her as such. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, as you say, this needs, it is, this certainly requires more nuance in this discussion. And um, I think uh, you've mentioned there about uh, in the specific instance of the, the, the trauma center, um, how if a woman, uh, you know, if, if this person had transitioned, uh, that it made sense for them to be there, they should be there. Uh, and if they hadn't made the effort that they, they uh, then they probably shouldn't be there. Um, should have, who, who should get to decide on that one? Um, should it be a legal status? Uh, how, how do we determine that? Sort of, how do, is it, does it, the, the doorkeeper of the trauma center, do they make the decision? Where do you think that sort of, where do you think that decision lies? Yeah, so I mean, you know, I have to invoke the sort of no investigation, no right to speak, and I haven't investigated that thoroughly enough to give a, an answer that I feel comfortable with. Okay. Um, 
but, uh, you know, sort of on that, actually, no, sorry, I forgot what I was going to say. It's okay. <laughs> it's okay. That's fine. Oh, no, I do remember now. Okay. You know, just sort of along a similar vein, you know, um, when you look at like the Philippines, for example, pre-colonization, they had five different, maybe you could say genders, right? So something that I'm investigating right now is the claim that transgender people have always existed. So, you know, this was largely a strategy of the gay movement as well. Um, John D'Amelio came in and made a Marxist intervention to that point. Are, are you familiar with him? No, please, please give us, uh, please explain to me. So he wrote on capitalism and gay identity, and his work exposed that the so-called free labor system of capitalism changed uh, the, you know, patriarchal, uh, self-subsistent uh, home under feudalism. Um, it changed the meaning and the function of the family. And uh, the introduction of wage labor created a sort of uh, freedom for uh, people to organize their lives around their sexual attraction and to create an identity around that. Um, and so that's why you see gay identity and gay community uh, sort of emerging after the introduction of uh, the wage labor system. And that's not to say that like same sex uh, behavior never happened. But when you look at a gay community and gay identity as it exists today, that is a relatively new phenomenon. Mm -hmm. um, and so what I'm trying to look at is uh, sort of, can we look at those who were, uh, you know, gender variant, whatever you want to call it, in pre-capitalist society and say that they were transgender? So, you know, you have Leslie Feinberg who says, yes, they were. I don't know if I agree with that. Um, I think that they were different. I think that as long as gender has existed, uh, you know, there might have been some resistance to conform entirely to gender. Um, and I think that perhaps some societies, uh, you know, sort of carved out a space for gender nonconformity. Um, and I think that it was connected to the division of labor. Um, of course, I would have to sort of verify those claims by doing, you know, research into history, uh, which I intend to do. Um, but when you when you look at like for example a place like the Philippines which had different categories of gender, someone like me would not have to feel uh, you know sort of where do I fit? Do I fit entirely into the woman category? Do I not? I would have had my own category that I would fit into. And I think part of the problem is that in a binary society, mm -hmm. uh, it is very hard to place us. And I think that that is sort of why. Um, transition uh, should be used as some sort of a metric, or at least that's where my thinking is headed right now. Mm -hmm. um, because we don't live in a society that accounts for gender variance, um, it sort of depends on how transitioned you are. If you're not very transitioned, you're likely going to be grouped in uh, among men if you're a trans woman. If you are more transitioned, you're likely going to be grouped in among women. And you sort of see this naturally play out when a trans woman, uh, you know, goes throughout her transition, she might start in the men's restroom and then at a certain point she'll be kicked out and told mm. to use the women's restroom. I suppose that was also almost, almost, a, almost a dialectic process, sort of almost you know, going with the, until the, the sort of counterpoint comes to it. But, um, okay. Uh, so, 
one second. Sorry, I've also it's a really fascinating discussion. Sorry, you've really <laughs> got me got me thinking. Um, yes, then if we if we continue with this discussion, then about uh, you know this 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 as you say the binary and and there's a lot of discussion within society as to how we decide um, what, what the, sort of the, the point as when someone has become uh, either side of the, of the male or female sort of thing. Um, but also, I want to see your thoughts on how uh, this issue has been sort of um, adopted or, or used or become sort of uh, as it is in sort of current discourse, particularly sort of mainstream discourse. Uh, things like, um, you know, uh, corporations uh, flying the rainbow flag and, and this kind of stuff, uh, you know, and, 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 and sort of on a more lighthearted note, things like uh, Mr. Potato Head uh, yesterday uh, is no longer Mr. Potato Head, he's now just uh, Potato Head. Um, you know, pink washing or, or trans washing, uh, what are your thoughts on this? Is it just sort of tokenism? Is it just cheap tokenism on the corporations just cashing in on this stuff? Yeah, I mean, I think it has to be entirely rejected on its face. Um, I think that if, you know, we are told that a kind of trans activism is, you know, sort of radical, but yet that kind of activism can be so easily usurped by, uh, you know, capitalists and imperialists, then maybe it's time for us to reevaluate that theory and that practice. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think that class is the primary nexus by which we have to uh, interpret reality and organize around. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, as I mentioned earlier, uh, you know, we have more to gain by uh, uniting with people in our own class. You know, uh, there's often this sort of antagonism between trans women and women. Um, there shouldn't be that. Uh, there is somewhat of a contradiction, but it, it doesn't have to be antagonistic. It's being made to be antagonistic. We need to turn that antagonism between us and turn it against our class enemies who are trying to appropriate our identities in order to sort of tame us or make us believe that they are our friends. You know, mm -hmm. uh, for example, Starbucks, you know, they have these rainbow cookies. Um, no, we, we simply need to, need to reject it on its face, right? And also like this whole Mr. Potato Head, who's now simply Potato Head. I mean, it's, it's just ridiculous. It, it's just a joke, right? Um, there's no, it does not at all benefit the material conditions of trans people. I mean, in, in the U.S., proletarian trans women are still four times as likely um, as others to make an income of under $10,000 a year. That's... Mm. Uh, having a sort of non-gendered, which I don't even know if uh, something can be non-gendered in a gendered society, uh, having a non-gendered potato does not affect the material conditions of trans people. We, we need to organize as a class uh, mm -hmm. together, united in struggle. Mm -hmm. What what um, what things uh, do uh, trans people need? Uh, sort of, what, what's the sort of primary things. So if we're, if we're thinking about uh, trans comrades and, and, and within the class struggle, uh, what, what do they need in, in your view? Yeah. So, you know, I think that part of the problem is that um, because we're so influenced by postmodernism, um, you know, trans people are sort of encouraged to organize uh, in isolation from other people of our own class and often are taught by uh, these sort of radical queer university professors to mm -hmm. see 
other workers, other non-trans workers are as our enemies, as sort of uh, reproducing our oppression. And, and I think that that is insidious. I think we need to turn that on its head. Um, chauvinistic attitudes against trans people absolutely, absolutely exist, uh, but that cannot be the only terrain of struggle. I mean, you, you have to add class into the matter. And when you, you add class, you realize um, that all of these solutions being proposed by, you know, sort of bourgeois academics and radical liberals and um, <laughs> Elizabeth Warren, who wants to read the names of trans women of color who have died on the steps of the White House. I mean, none of that does anything other than virtue signal some empty, you know, morality about trans people that they fetishize. Um, we need housing. We need, uh, you know, jobs. We need good jobs. Uh, we need to fight for better jobs, better wages. Um, we need uh, defense from landlords who uh, might kick us out. Uh, we need defense from uh, men who commit violence against us. Uh, we need to recognize, uh, you know, institutions like the sex trade, which are responsible for large amounts of violence against transgender women. Uh, you know, that these institutions are not our friends. We need to reject the conflation between the identity of a trans woman and a prostitute. And we need to organize together with other proletarians as a class to mm. demand uh, material benefits uh, to our class as a whole and to fight the chauvinistic attitudes against us that often influence our quality of life. Mm, mm, mm. Okay, okay. I, I think uh, I, I was, you've mentioned some examples that I shouldn't uh, considered uh, in relation to... Um, the virtue signaling that you that that's been going around, and 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 I'll bring up some of the examples. I mean, the uh, for example, the, the Israeli army uh, often flies the rainbow flag. And NATO will sometimes have a tweet with the rainbow flag. Um, I wanted to get your thoughts on that, and, and I think the sort of thing that that shows us, and I think you've already mentioned this, uh, you've kind of covered this, but we'll, we'll perhaps go into it a bit deeper. Is that by itself, um, sort of the trans uh, politics as it's been presented by the liberals. Is mm, it's not it's not inherently revolutionary. Uh, it doesn't really end imperialism. It doesn't uh, overthrow the bourgeois. It doesn't uh, seize the means of production. It's it can be co-opted and used um, by uh, the forces of, of capital um, very easily. Um, so by itself, without the class element, it's actually impotent uh, and mm -hmm. and can you know the, the tank can be painted in the rainbow flag very easily. Absolutely. Right. And I mean, we know that one divides into two. Right. And you see that even within identity groups that are often presented as homogenous. Right. Uh, but they're not they're, They have a very petty bourgeois focus, uh, very influenced by petty bourgeois consciousness. And that's what ultimately leads them to reformism. Um, you know, we need to be able to identify our friends and our enemies. And when you simply go on identity politics, you are not able to correctly identify your friends and your enemies. So mm -hmm. if you identify as a woman of color and you assume other women of color are your friends, you are going to be tricked into supporting uh, an imperialist, uh, you know, incarcerator warmonger like Kamala Harris. Whereas if you have a class analysis, then you will have a clear understanding of who your enemies are and who your friends are. Um, that being said, of course, I think that, you know, 
comrade Ajith in his most recent book on concepts and methods, which he published with Foreign Language Press, he talks about the need to turn those struggles into class struggles um, in a sense that, you know, he analyzes the uh, popularity of identity politics in India. And he recognizes that identity politics have largely been pushed by imperialist sponsored NGOs, mm. um, that they are ultimately reformist and that they are not able to, uh, you know, achieve anything beyond reforms that only benefit, uh, you know, the petty bourgeois or the bourgeoisie, etc. Um, but what he states that I think needs to be examined and investigated is that identity politics do have a material basis, right? They don't drop from the sky out of nowhere. They, they do have a material basis. And there is a reason why they have uh, some sort of popularity among people. And we need to investigate that and ask why um, and figure out how we can address those issues through a proletarian class stand. Mm, 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 mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, do you think then, obviously, uh, uh, would you agree then that, uh, I think you would, I mean, you've kind of just already alluded to it there, is that with the identity politics stuff, uh, it, like you said, it hasn't fallen from the sky, it comes from a material basis, and it is driven by the forces of, 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 of capital, of empire, to divide the working class. And, and that's the real problem here, that perhaps... Um, you know, uh, there are people who are um, arguing against elements of the trans discussion, but not because of its being uh, against trans people, but because of its divisive, the, the manner is in which it is being uh, actioned now is extremely divisive. And is and in, in a way, it silos the working class. Is, is this something you would agree with? Yes and no. Um, okay. I think that oftentimes people who argue against that continue to make the contradiction antagonistic when it does not need to be antagonistic, right? Um, at the same time, I mean, we have to recognize that, you know, uh, especially in, you know, a settler, you know, state like the United States or like Israel, you know, issues such as racism and other, you know, factors, I mean, they do take on a life of their own, right? This is not something that was denied by Marx or Engels, um, you know, and so I, I think that we need to be able to explain them with a class analysis rather than just sort of pushing them away. I mean, the issue of, you know, what trans people go through, it, it doesn't need to be an either or. Uh, we can address uh, problems facing trans people as we address problems facing class as a whole, our class as a whole. And I think it's returning to a politics of solidarity. Um, mm -hmm. You know, one, one of the experiences that uh, sort of shaped my thinking around this was when I first started knocking on doors of hotel housekeepers, mostly who were immigrant women, um, many of whom, you know, you might describe as transphobic. And, uh, you know, I did not knock on their doors demanding that they use this kind of language and that they think in this kind of way or else I'm going to reject them as cis-privileged or, you know, oppressive. Mm. I showed them solidarity before I expected them to show it back to me. Mm. So I sat with them in their living rooms. I organized them. I, I talked to them about their 
abusive managers and, and the wages that were getting stolen from them. And I marched into their boss's office with them and we fought together. And through that process of building solidarity, uh, their consciousness was transformed. Um, and, and we came to a sort of unity that only results from class struggle. And that's not to say we shouldn't struggle against chauvinistic attitudes because we should. Um, and that's part of the reason why we need to be organized because then we have organizational methods of struggling against chauvinism. You know, I think one of the, the big issues is that oftentimes I've seen organizations and parties be plagued by uh, sort of male chauvinism, right? And I think that we need to be able to address those issues head on um, because it's not simply the sort of subordinate group needing to show solidarity with the, you know, perhaps dominant group, but it's also the dominant group needing to show solidarity with the subordinate group. And I think a lot of people have a lot of egos around this, but if we're organizers, we have to kill our ego and we have to show solidarity with other working people and unite in struggle. Mm, 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 mm. Um, I just wanted because you're you're talking about organizing there, which again uh, we we did discuss in the beginning, um, and you did also. I think uh, yeah, I was going to bring this up, but I think you've already covered it. Is the um, you know that you are going to meet, uh, and and we've discussed this on many other episodes with other people, is that when you're organizing with the working class, there is reactionary tendencies, uh, racism, homophobia, transphobia. Uh, chauvinism, um, all of this stuff exists. And, and you know, the, I want to hear your thoughts on how you sort of deal with that uh, as best you can. Uh, and also um, sort of some of the, the, I suppose, male chauvinist sort of tendencies that you, you see the most in, in even progressive organizations and, and how, how, how we should combat that. Yeah, well, I think we have to struggle against it. I think, you know, while I do believe in the primacy of class, while I do believe in a class stand, a class-based politics of solidarity that transcends the particularities of identity, we also need to recognize that chauvinistic attitudes of men or, you know, white people against sort of black people, whatever, I mean, those things will eventually, those are contradictions. And if you do not resolve those contradictions, they will unravel your organization. Um, mm. we, we've seen this happen. And so I think that, you know, uh, for example, one of the reasons why we've seen communists sort of retreat on the issue of the sex trade is because there is a sort of male chauvinism, you know, in which that issue and an institution which is uh, violent and, and harmful and even deadly to proletarian women is uh, retreated on. Um, whereas I think we need to show uh, solidarity by working on these issues, not as an afterthought, but as a a first thought, you know, so I was in a sort of uh, reading and organizing group uh, that was organized around, you know, Marxism, Leninist, Mao Marxist, Leninist, Maoist thought. Um, and, uh, you know, we uh, sort of just started out by studying, uh, you know, the basics and uh, sort of organizing in the community. But um, issues of male violence and male sexual violence uh, ended up coming up in our group. And it almost unraveled us. And at that point, we realized that we needed to take the study of the woman question uh, seriously and not simply as an afterthought. And so the men organized amongst themselves and took this study upon themselves. Mm. Um, and, and it made our group stronger. It strengthened us as cadre. 
Um, and so I think we cannot wait for it to be an afterthought. We have to place it at the beginning of our analysis. And I think that's what I mean by rejecting identity politics, but making, uh, you know, addressing the sort of material basis of those politics through class struggle. Mm, 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 mm. Fascinating. Fascinating. Um, I know that this is not directly linked to the specifics of the discussion. And I, and I think maybe it's uh, a bit of a, a superficial part of, of the of this of the discussion. But people will be listening and, and I'm sure someone might be thinking um, in terms of the of the trans discussion on, on sports. I know this does come up when people discuss this. I want to hear your thoughts on that. And, and I, I, again, yeah, it's not exactly the, the deepest of core issues, but people will be thinking about that. And I want to hear your thoughts on that, too. Yeah, so again, I want to invoke the sort of no investigation, no right to speak. I have not thoroughly investigated it. In order for me to feel comfortable, I need to read the biological science. I need to read Mm -hmm. the opinion of medical doctors, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But what I can say, given that caveat, is um, I think that it's been made a big cultural issue, a sort of a culture war issue, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that once again... um, it's something that is completely dividing us, right? Uh, in the U.S., for example, you see these bourgeois politicians like Tulsi Gabbard introducing a bill. And, uh, you know, I mean, the trans people are less than 1% of the population, right? Um, well, our issues are don't affect the majority of people. They, they simply mm. don't. And yet uh, we're wrapped up in this huge culture war about it. Um, mm. I, I think that, you know, this is something that could be studied uh, and sort of have particular solutions according to the sport. So, mm. for example, it would be very different if you have a transgender woman who transitioned at 40 years old after four, you know, 20 years of bodybuilding, <laughs> right. um, deciding to get in an MMA cage uh, with the female at the same time. Uh, you might have an instance of a transgender woman who transitioned at 15 years old um, and whose you know, years of hormone therapy have decreased her bone density and muscle mass and she wants to play golf with the other women. Yeah. Are you going to tell me there's a big issue there? I think mm-hmm. another thing that needs to be studied is that oftentimes elite athletes themselves are biological anomalies, right? Um, right. They, they simply are. That That's what makes them elite that combined with skill, but oftentimes they do have an inherent uh, physiological or anatomical advantage that makes them uh, so elite in their sport. So so I think that the issue needs to be studied, but I think that regardless of what, uh, you know, sort of comes at the conclusion of that study, we need to reject this as a cultural war wedge issue because it is dividing us and it Mm. is taking our attention away. I mean, uh, Biden just drop bombs on Syria. He just right. deported 26,000 people. Um, but we're over here arguing about whether a group of people that makes up less than 1% of the population can participate in sports. I mean, we have a class enemy and we need to unite against that enemy. And instead we're arguing over whether or not someone can, you know, it, it makes no sense to me. Yes. Yes. Okay. Uh, I, yeah. I agree with you on that one. Absolutely. Um, my last sort of question is, um, uh, if, I don't know if you've seen recently the film, um, Judas and the Black Messiah, uh, about Fred Hampton and the Black Panthers. 
I haven't yet, um, but I've uh, many people I know have watched it and given their sort of take on it. Okay, okay. I, 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 it's more more about Fred Hampton, so I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with Fred Hampton and the Black Panthers. Um, obviously, in that film, he's portrayed as a as a as a messiah, as a sort of uh, you know um, a, a great leader. Uh, I want to hear what your thoughts are and as to sort of who. Who do you see as being uh, a great leader in our time, as a as a for, for the working class, for the for the for the, for the class struggle? Um, who's the sort of quote unquote Fred Hampton of our time? Um, uh, and then, if it's not an individual, uh, which organisation do you listen to or turn to uh, for your guidance? And who do you think um, has got sort of revolutionary potential uh, in for particularly American politics? Hmm. That is a very interesting question. I um, I don't think that I have really spent a lot of time pondering that. I mean, um, definitely not Bob Avakian, I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, but no, uh, you know, because his followers here, that's, you know, they, they believe he is the next Lenin. Um, who's but uh, Bob Avakian. Okay. And so who's Bob Avakian? No. From the Revolutionary Communist Party of the USA. Okay, 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 okay. So not Boba Bakken. sort of cult of personality around him, and his followers literally believe that he is the, you know, next Lenin or Mao. Um, okay. You know, the, the truth is, is that I don't necessarily know how to answer that question. Um, one of the things that this brings up for me, however, I was in a sort of, you know, summer study cohort uh, with comrades, you know, and from different parts of the world, uh, you know, like from South Africa, Brazil, um, other areas. And we were, you know, reading a critique of the Black Panther Party. And mm. one of the critiques that came up was that because they had, uh, you know, such charismatic central leaders and because those leaders were so public, it was very easy for a state actor to, you know, uh, target them, identify a target and take them down. And so one of the sort of critiques that came up is that, you know, a, a similar movement today would need to focus more on plans, uh, not personalities. And, and that's something right. that sort of stuck with me and sort of I pondered. Um you know, in, in terms of who has uh, sort of revolutionary potential today in the U.S., I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, what I can tell you in terms of who I look to, mm. uh, you know, sort of as uh, driving my thought, as I mentioned, one, uh, you know, is uh, Comrade Ajith uh, in India. Um, you know, this, this recent book that he published has just completely... Uh, changed my mind, uh, you know, and, and added so much depth to the critique of what he calls postisms, which is sort of like postmodernism, postcolonialism, poststructuralism, and the way that it really infiltrates, um, you know, the, the sort of discourse on the left. Mm. Um, you know, I'm also inspired by the, you know, people's uh, revolution in the Philippines, uh, the Naxalites mm. in, the, in India. Um, mm. But I'm not sure that I could sort of point to a, a sort of single person or organization and say, you know, they are sort of the, the Fred Hampton of our times. Gotcha. I also think maybe because we're in a sort of different moment than they were then, and maybe as contradictions sharpen, we'll see one pop up. Sure. And then just more so uh, sort of uh, when, when you're looking at analysis of uh, current affairs, who, uh, who, what, what do you read? 
who do you listen to uh, for information? If not, if not leadership, if, if not, a, if not a quote unquote Fred Hampton, um, for information and for analysis, which journalists and which um, which people? Yeah. So the truth is, I uh, have to read everything. I read everything from you know bourgeois texts. Uh, you know, liberal news, uh, conservative, uh, you know, sort of Republican news to, um, you know, different like sort of media outlets on the left, everything from, you know, RT to Telesur, Press TV, mm-hmm. um, you know, but I, but I think in terms of analysis, you know, I, I try to look at, uh, you know, the sort of analyses that are being produced by comrades uh outside of the imperial core, um, because I feel like that is uh, an analysis that we're often sort of shut off from. Mm -hmm. Um, But in terms of who I read, you know, I feel like we have to read everyone. I mean, uh, Marx, Engels, Lenin, uh, they they read everyone, right? Um, In order to sort of understand uh, the enemy's argument as best as they could. And so I I try to do that as well. I see. I see. Brilliant. Brilliant. Um, Thank you so much, Esperanza, for uh, coming on and speaking uh, to us today. I, I've been uh, fascinated. This has been a great, great discussion, I think. And um, I'm sure that I'll, everyone watching, listening will um, will agree. Uh, thank you very much. And um, yeah, hopefully we'll have you on in the future again to discuss something else. And uh, maybe we can uh, come back to some of those topics that you uh, invoked the um, no, 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 uh, no research, uh, no, no right to speak sort of <laughs> stuff. Uh, but yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. And that is it for this episode of the Marxist Think Tank. Catch us every other week here on SoundCloud. To allow us for our reporting and our content to remain independent, please consider donating to our Patreon and becoming a voting member in the link down below in the description. If you have a news tip or would like to talk to us, please email admin at marxistthinktank.org. Our editor is Sean Sanchez. News writer and producer is Reggie Truman. And I'm Oscar Bastille. Thank you for listening.